Aalto University Podcast. This is Cloud Reachers. I'm Tommy Kauppinen. Today, Dale Fordes, welcome. Thank you very much, Tommy. Delighted to be here as always. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a great pleasure. We have been planning this for a while already. I mean, like one year or so. Yeah, it's right. been, uh, time buzz by quickly though, but uh, yeah. um, a lot of uh, good ideas, a lot of uh, great collaboration. Nice. Hey, thanks for um, so much for joining. Um, let's go directly to the point. So let's talk about learning. I mean, this is the whole thing about <laughs> right. this podcast. So, um, so you have been super actively doing blended learning, also studying blended learning. So... Um, can you share about that experience? Yeah, I think that probably for me, blended learning was a response to me having the great opportunity to teach a huge variety of different types of uh, learners in many, many different settings. I have taught um, courses on ships. I've taught courses on airplanes. I have taught um, uh, elders. I've taught uh, kids um, in school. I've taught graduate students. I've taught undergraduate students. I've had years and years of corporate training practice. And so all of those challenges um, were things that I think I developed What I always wanted to be was the biggest thing in the room, especially in corporate training. I think it's really important, you know, people multitask. And especially if you're working for a large corporation and doing corporate training, there's a lot of other things that people could be doing or think they could be doing. And so one of the things I teach my students and that I learned is that you need to be the biggest thing in the room. You need to suck up all of the attention that's there. And for me, blended learning was the way to do that. And I learned that um, we talked earlier about passive and uh, you know, uh, more um, assertive forms of getting people's attention, more active forms of getting people's attention. And I can put people to sleep pretty quick with my voice, I think. So I learned that you know, I have like a 10 minute limit that people can listen to me or that I can listen to myself. And then we need to do something. So I've always followed what was, uh, I think it's called the IDAD approach, which was I introduce a topic, I discuss it, and then they apply it. So introducing it, discussing it takes about five minutes, and then they apply it for another five minutes, and then we discuss it again. So IDAD, introduce, discuss, apply, and then discuss again, or introduce and demonstrate, and then apply and discuss. And so that's um, something that I learned in doing corporate training that I took back to training in uh, um, graduate school and in the business schools that I work in. And uh, students always tell me that my classes are very different uh, than the other classes that they take. We are more active, and they seem to think that that's a positive. I know it is for me because I certainly don't want to hear myself talk for, you know, three hours or whatever a class mm-hmm. may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I've always looked for ways to mix up a class, and it may be the new, newest technologies, it may be old technologies, it may be just simply getting people to look at one another and talk. But mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know, for me, blended learning is blended blending the different modalities by which we understand and communicate with one another. Mm. So, how do you think? How does it actually work at the university? I know that you have been studying, um, like how faculty is using or how to engage faculty faculty to use blended learning. So, why is it important to study it? Well, I think it's important for the same reason that um, it's important for think of it in a healthcare setting. You know, you have incredible technology in healthcare, 
But if the healthcare professional doesn't know how to use it, it can be worse than um, if you know it wasn't there at all. So it can be used well, it can be used poorly, it can cause damage, or it can be transformational for people's lives. So just as you'd like your surgeon to be uh, to know and to be practiced in terms of using the technology, I think the same thing is there with uh, teaching professionals. Is you want those people to understand what is available to them to use and what is appropriate to get across what they're trying to do at any given time. You know, we teach to learning objectives and learning outcomes now. And uh, different types of technologies, different types of blended learning techniques are um, better and worse for achieving certain ends. And Mm -hmm. so, again, just like different types of medical tools are good for achieving different ends. And so, again, I think it's important to see how faculty um, react and use different forms of technology. I think I was telling you earlier that I ran across a a relatively large literature about how stressful it is for many faculty folks to be held to the expectation that they will use more more technology in their classes, for example. And that's um, an issue of the fact that many people's uh, experiences with technology may be somewhat negative, and that's exemplified when you're in front of a class of people that you are trying to establish your credibility and trust with. So I think that there's a lot of fear of failure, and that probably drives a lot of the anxiety. And I've failed so many times in front of so many different types of um, audiences with so many different types of, of uh, technology that I think I'm kind of immune to it now. And uh, if it fails, we, we can do something else. We can make it work. You know, mm-hmm. It can be part of that learning experience there. I teach in a business school. So my students are going to be going out. They're going to be using technology to make um, compelling, articulate uh Uh, proposals and arguments on behalf of their companies, their technology is going to fail. So part of the learning is that I'm using technology that they're going to be using. They'll see me and how I react when it fails. And then Mm. that's an important learning itself. So even now I'm at the point where when it doesn't work, I try to model what is it that you do when you're in front of your clients and your technology is failing. Yeah, yeah. That's so fantastic. Very interesting. Just uh, yesterday in my class, um, I was telling the students that it's actually it's uh, really good to um, fail in a way that uh, that I mean with different technology and and have different scenarios like what to do. I mean, okay, good. Now the screen doesn't show my presentation. I mean, what will I say? Will I say that okay, let's forget the presentation, or will I say that hey, let's have a fireside chat? I mean, just gather around this one laptop. If there is like twenty or thirty people around, I mean, it can be done. Yes, it can. And you learn that. And I mean, I remember that I've been in situations where I've been uh, doing uh, some pretty high level uh, corporate training and there was a fire in the facility where we were. One time in Venezuela, we were um, uh, there was a flood and the flood um, waters reached our floor and we finally had to be evacuated. But we continued the class, you know, going forward. We had to leave all the technology behind. But by then we had created a relationship. And, you know, whether you teach with technology or not as much technology, the important thing is having that connection. You know, and technology can help with that connection, I believe. Some people think that technology puts a a block or, you know, a wall between you and the people that you're trying to reach. But I really think that it's a common tool that we can use together. And it can help to create relationships as well, because it's a different way of interacting with people, it mm-hmm. seems to me. And it, it creates a very rounded type of relationship mm-hmm. in many cases, at least as far as I see it. How do you see, um, how do you see the role of time? Because, I mean, um, I'm just, I mean, this is a hypothesis that if you look at teachers, perhaps they are more used to 
go to the lecture room and then they know that, okay, well, there might be some minutes or, you know, 10 minutes to get everything uh, rolling, but then they are kind of on the uh, comfort zone to give the presentation. But if they use more technology, perhaps they are not that, you know, kind of sure, like how much time do I need to assess this online or like set up this online, whatever video system, you see what I mean? I, I see what you mean, and I like it because it reminds me of, you know, uh, uh, upon reflection, something that I do is that you mentioned um, you being in your comfort zone. I don't need to be in my comfort zone when I'm yeah. teaching. I need to be in the comfort zone of the people who are learning. I need to be able to put them into a place because I've always said I don't teach anybody anything. But I am very good at creating an, a, a situation in which people can learn if they choose to do so. And so what I focus on is I may be incredibly uncomfortable, but if I feel that I'm creating that space where people can learn, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I see. And so that's how failure with technology will fit into that is because I've seen that now as an important outcome of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. People need to see me fail with the technology yeah. to understand yeah. what to do with it. And uh, so I, that's, a, that's a really great question there. But time is something that uh, I think that it's practice, you know, just like anything. I know, and, and having contingencies. Yeah. So I am an inveterate uh, list writer. I do mind mapping. I mind map out all of my courses. I practice the technology ahead of time. Uh, one thing that technology has done that some people see is maybe a little bit of a negative is that in the old days, any of us could just walk into a room and teach. You know, you've been through the PhD progr program. Yeah. You can just walk in and talk for an hour about anything, even yeah. if you don't really know that much about <laughs> it. The thing about technology is technology demands more of you. Te teaching with technology is more like writing a book. You need to know the story before the first page is opened. You need to have the technology ready. You know, I teach a lot of online classes, and that's the big difference there, is that I have that entire, I have gone through that entire class in my head already several times before the first student ever gets oh, yeah. into the course. Yeah. Yeah. And I spend so much time on that because I know that everything has to sync up. But it's yeah. a good discipline to learn, I would say. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, using, uh, you know, systems thinking, using mind mapping and all of those things, and building that in, and using technology to do that really helps me understand what time is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what it will take. Uh, and I'm still learning on it as well. Yeah, that's super interesting because also if you look at, uh, looking at education videos, I mean, you really, really need to have the story ready if you are going to record a like three to four minute video. Right. If you give a presentation for one or one and a half hours, perhaps you don't really need to have that story. Of course, you should mm -hmm. have that story, but people just you know, don't have it perhaps always. And I think that because natural interruptions occur when you're doing it in person in a classroom. Yeah. I don't think we, I think we look at it and we think, oh yeah, you know, I'm just able to, to go with the flow. And there is a flow there, but it's just simply because we're more used to it. There's also a flow to working with technology yeah. that we're maybe not as used to. But maybe that's just a, a you know, a, a aspect of our generation. Yeah. You know, as uh, people and machines become closer and closer and closer, I think um, understanding that flow of the, the human, um, you know, a digital uh, connection and, and relationship will get better at judging what that is. Yeah. And so, um, again, I do things now that I don't tell my students to watch a short video and then ask them about it. I watch it with them. I invest yeah, I that see. time I in see. with them so that we all see it together. In the old days, what I would have done is I would have asked students to um, do a presentation in front of the class for me and the rest of the students, and then we would critique them on that, We'd give them feedback. 
Nowadays, what I do is I, what I really love to do is I love to tell my students that these are the days we're going to be having presentations. And they come in for that first presentation and I go, okay, uh, here's how it works. You have one hour to videotape your presentation and then we're going to come back and you are going to watch your presentation along with everyone else. So I give the students something like Screencast-O-Matic where they go in and they just have to capture their screen and do the talking over on a presentation. The whole team goes off and does that. And then we, I gather together all of, and then they upload them to YouTube because I think everybody needs to know how to do those things. Yeah. And then they all come back in and we run the videos so that the students can hear themselves and see their presentations going through. And uh, it's a very different experience. I love it because the students don't think they can do it. You know, you can just yeah. see them going, oh my God, this, I'm not going to be able to do this. What is he doing to us? And then afterwards when they've done it and they've done a good job, because they always do, yeah. you know, yeah. that idea that, wow. You know, That's a this is a very idea. powerful school, mm-hmm. set of school, tales to have. So, um, you know, and, and those require rearranging time and your perception of what is the value of time. What's mm-hmm. the most valuable thing? So to me, the most valuable thing is not me sitting there giving students feedback. It's a more important thing for me to do some feedback, but the students to be able to give better feedback and reflect on themselves and see what it yeah, is that they're yeah. doing. So it's the rearrangement of time. And thinking, what are what can I do that's more valuable than I would have done otherwise? Mm-hmm. Fantastic example. I mean, I really love that setting. I, I will. I promise to try it myself. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Hey. Um. I mean, it seems that I mean you are so super active. You have been teaching in so many places and also online and in Mickey for like over 20 years. So I was there at the what, beginning. In yeah. What, so what? I mean, I, I really want to ask like, what drives you in learning and teaching? Like, I mean. Why are you doing what you do? I mean, one so of, fantastically. Uh, great question again. And one of the things I like to talk to, I, I'm a big believer in, and I've, um, at first I used to think that the most important thing I did in a class was to get as much content out to the students as quickly as possible. Yeah. Because that was my job, to get as much content out as possible. Nowadays I just like to talk to them and I like to listen to them. And so I'm a big believer that it's not a waste of time to get to know the other people in the class. It's not a waste of time to ask people where they're from and what's important to them. I want people to develop relationships because I think relationships are important in classes and relationships with me. And I think that in the courses I teach, people need to understand how other people think so that they can uh, benchmark their own thinking in it. And so uh, one of the things I always talk to students about on the first day of class is how I'm different from them. And one of the ways that I'm different from them is I love school so much, I made it my life. I can't imagine not going to school. And that's very different than a lot of people who see school as a credential to get, and then you're out of there and you're never going to read another book. You're never going to uh, learn another, uh, you know, software package again. You're going to get out of there. And so for me, it's I love to learn and I can't exist outside of an environment where there are other people who are interested Mm -hmm. in learning Mm -hmm. as well. It just would be abject pain. You know, I go back and I look at people um, in jobs that I had in government and other places when I was younger, and they're still there. After 20, 25 years, I can't imagine how that would happen. And they basically know what they knew at that time. They may have raised families and had really, really great lives, but they're kind of still how they were. I've become so many different people throughout my life because of what I learn, the students that I run into, the classes that I get to teach, (laughs) um, that, uh, you know, it's... uh, it's what I need for me to be happy at the end of the day is that I have to feel that I have done something every day that I was afraid of doing, that I was certain I couldn't do, and I have to learn something every single day. That's a fantastic. I mean, it, it, um, 
brings uh, to my mind a lot of lot of stories. Also, one story when uh, before my PhD, actually, I was working for companies. Then one um, one of our customers said that uh, yeah, you are doing so fantastic job with the data visualizations for I mean for our customers, so that you could do this until you retire. And I was like, whoa, I don't want to do it oh, until right. I retire, right? That was my big motivation to start doing PhD because I didn't want to continue the same path, you know, like without learning right. anything. So, right. Well, I'm neither saw, fish nor fowl. I mean, I love doing practitioner work. I'm a marketer. Yeah. I love to see ads on TV that I've yeah, had some yeah. input into, a product on a shelf, yeah. the design of a product. Yeah. I love to see that output. That's what yeah, really drove yeah. me as, as a marketer. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I have to think. I love being around people and I love mixing it up in teams and product groups and marketing groups. I also like to have time to think about stuff. And so I have to also have that academic side of me. Yeah. Um, if um, Actually, if you look at, I mean, you mentioned uh, ads and, uh, of course, we are using uh, all these gadgets to uh, look at uh, different, I mean, they are also products. So what do you think, I mean, if you take all these gadgets and all this online information that is around us, so what is essential to learn in this era? All right, so when you said the word gadget, my niece's face immediately popped in front of me. <laughs> and so I think that um, a gadget is someone else's technology. Okay, I, I think see. that I think that what might be a very important technology to one person is a gadget to someone else. I see. My grandmother would have seen my cell phone as a gadget. She I didn't see, yeah. quite get yeah, why yeah. you would need something like that. Yeah. Whereas my niece, it's her life. Her entire mm. identity and social circle is involved in that little piece of uh, metal that she, yeah. and glass that she holds in her hand. Yeah. And so there are lots of gadgets out there, and that's fun. I mean, I love gadgets, and I love it even more when they become an important part of my life that yeah. I can use yeah. to get done what I'm trying to do, whether it's teaching, whether it's in um, the practice that I do in marketing or in my personal life. Mm. So where is the future going to go? I, you know, we're, the machines are talking to each other more than we are talking to them these days, according to yeah. the Internet of Things folks. And so there's that issue of um, what, what is the relationship of machine and machine and, uh, and, and human going to be? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, it seems like we're willing to give over a lot of responsibilities to the machines to make decisions on our behalf. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but there still has to be, but there's a relationship there of some sort. Yeah. And are we expecting them to be so uh, to uh, understand us, to by observing us and facial, you know, features and all that sort of stuff to recognize what our needs are? Uh, I don't know, but I know that I have this recurrent dream, and in my dream, I'm in my head and I'm thinking. And I'm trying to use my brain like it was a computer. I'm trying to uh, use it like it's a screen. And I'm trying to move around and access different pieces of information by touching on the screen, by using kind of like a mouse to move around yeah. and to scroll through pages. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we work with machines so much that we can't help but perhaps begin to think like they do. You know, we've always talked about the fact that we try to create artificial intelligence based on neural networks and the way people think. I, mean, I think what will happen faster is that people will learn to think like machines rather than machines will learn to think like people. Okay, so we learn to communicate with them. Perhaps we have yeah, already and, learned and, it. And I mean, we're the ones who are learning. Yeah, yeah. We always think that artificial intelligence is about them learning about us. Yeah. I think it's us learning how to communicate better with them. We yeah, can learn yeah. to communicate with better with them. They can 
look like they're learning to communicate better with us, but it's really us making allowances for what yeah. their um, limitations are. That's a very interesting point because, I mean, there is a lot of discussion about human versus AI, yeah. but it's really much more human with AI. Yes. Right. I mean, we are anyways with the AI. And uh, now the question is like, how do we communicate with AI? How do we search for information? How do we present very complex kind of uh, data sets? Uh, how do we learn from them visually, perhaps? Yep. Uh, we both know the answer to that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's data visualization. Yeah. The only way for human brains to deal with the onslaught of data in front of us coming in from so quickly from so many different places and so many formats is to visualize it so we can use that holistic aspect of the brain to be able to process patterns rather than statistics and rows yeah. and columns of numbers. Mm. And all of that. So. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, we have. I mean, if you look at look back, I mean, we have been here for quite some time. I mean, as humans, I mean, um, this is not the first generation of, of humans around, and we are so used to um, be in the wild, right? I mean, to really quickly decide where to go to and uh, to see movement, to see patterns, to see friendly faces. Right. I mean, to see somebody who is threatening us. So uh, if we visualize data and information in a way very natural to us, perhaps we also understand it, I mean, faster than, than with, uh, by, I mean, by other means. Absolutely. And that's why in all of my courses now, I'm lucky enough to get to teach data visualization in a business analytics program. But I've been incorporating, um, quickly incorporating um, visualization into all of my other classes, which is a form of blended learning as well. So whereas I would have, might have given students a, a term paper, I now give them a, a tableau assignment where they create a visualization. And then they have to explain the visual aspect rather than just talking to a PowerPoint slide. I want them to stand up in front of the room. I want them to interact with a dashboard. I want them to, ex to tell us what the answer was to this, the question that drove their story. And then I want them to work with us to explore more about the data and come up with new questions that they may not have even thought about. And that's what um, technology gives us the ability to do. And especially mm -hmm. data visualization technology is mm -hmm. to be able to um, use that curiosity that we have for story and yeah. that ability that we have to perceive images and the meaning that lies beneath and around images. So that's uh, that's a lot of fun these days. I'm enjoying that, and I use it in all of my classes. Uh, in sustainability classes, it's great because there's so much sustainability data out there. Uh, in the uh, classes that I teach for the undergraduates, it's so much better. I can not only it's better for me to give them a tableau assignment and teach them to do data visualization than to have them do a tire load term project because they're going to leave my class then with a skill that they can talk about when they go yeah. into an interview situation. Plus, they can become citizen data scientists. They can take advantage of all that data that's out there and look at issues that are of importance to them. Yeah, so great that you mentioned sustainability because, I mean, what do you think about it? I mean, we have so many courses about different uh, tools or methods or like process thinking and so on, but... Uh, But uh, isn't it um, isn't this era also calling for using some values? I mean, as a kind of basis for courses. I mean, for example, I'm using the Sustainable Development Goals of United Nations Absolutely. as a kind of basis for the visualization. So choose any topic you want, but one that somehow helps us to understand one of the goals. And you, goals. you hit on something that was a problem that I had in the sustainability class. I would have people from finance and from cyber 
uh, security uh, go to the dean and say, I don't know why I have to take sustainability. It, uh, the sustainability business and society class, it has no relevance to my field of work. Whoa. And so, of course, then they get out into the field of work and they realize that isn't true. But what I did is I used the sustainable development goals. And the very first thing I have them do now is to look at them. And there are some really great tools out there for looking to see what are the most important of those goals in your industry. What every industry, finance, cyber, whatever the industry is, they all have position statements about what are is most important in those sustainable development goals yeah, yeah. for them. And then I have the students go and look at that and then they come back and they talk to us about what are the most important about whether or not they agree or disagree. Mm-hmm. And what it has done is it's gotten to see that there are people in their industry who do see um, sustainability as important, and it's these goals, and, and that's the great thing about the goals, is they break it down into little bite-sized pieces. That, yeah, yeah. Well, they're not really bite-sized. Some are pretty huge. But you can <laughs> understand them then better than just saying sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I agree. Hey, um, talking about um, your life and career. So uh, can you share some perhaps turning point in your life and, or career that has made you think differently? I can think of a couple of things that uh, made a big difference to me. Uh, first one was probably when I was asked to first teach. Well, okay, let's go in chronological order. I was asked to come to Finland and teach a three-week course And I had never, I never thought of Finland before in my life. I had no idea where Mikuli was, um, and there was a bit of miscommunication. So I was asked to come to Finland and cl- teach a class in marketing, and it was going to be, um, I thought, to graduate students, and they wanted to do case studies. Well, with miscommunications back in those days, we were communicating primarily through fax, if you can believe it or Whoa. not. Fax <laughs> is going back and forth. And so I get here, and I get to Helsinki, and I think I'm going to be teaching at what my friends had told me was the main school, which is where they were teaching. And that's how I found out about it. And I get here, and I find that I have to hop on a train, and I have to go three or four hours up to the north to a place called Mikuli to teach at a program that I had no idea. That, and then I get there, and the students are undergraduate students. They have never had a marketing class before. Uh, they've never had a case class before. And all I brought with me were uh, materials to be able to teach graduate students marketing at an advanced level from cases. And I stepped into the classroom, and the students were incredible, and we did it. And I think for me, that was one of those things that I really stopped worrying about whether I could be successful in teaching uh, a class, even if I didn't quite, you know, understand all of it or understand what the setting was. It was really the first time that I encountered something that was so totally different, so totally different than what I expected mm-hmm. and was able to make it through by, you know, working with good students and using the resources that I had. And I think that that was part of the thing that's made me always more likely to want to try other uh, riskier ventures. So I think coming to teach um, in in Finland, for me, uh, teaching in Mikuli in particular, there's a lot of challenges there I would not have had otherwise. I totally didn't believe I could teach a class, uh, a class that I usually taught in 15 weeks and three weeks. I I was pretty sure I couldn't do it, but I thought I'd give it a try. It'd be something to do. And then when I found out that I can actually teach a class better in three weeks than I can in 15 weeks, Well, that was, you know, really opened my eyes to, you know, thinking about what is it, you have to think about what the students can do, not what you can do. Yeah, and yeah, I can I can yeah. step up to whatever the students can do. And they're generally going to be, you know, propelling me toward what I need to do to to, to, to pay attention to them and give them what it is that they need. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things that, uh, that really changed uh, my perception. The other one was when I was first asked to teach online. 
And I thought, I could never teach a class online. I teach marketing. I have to talk to people about, um, you know, understanding uh, consumers' attitudes and emotions. And, and I have to talk to people about being persuasive and compelling and articulate. And, you know, it's just not going to work on an online class. And then, and, and plus, I won't get to know the students. I teach because I like being in a classroom. I like that relationship with students. I like building that relationship and having civilized discussions. Well, imagine my surprise after I taught a class for the first time and I found out I got to know my students in an online class better. Yeah. That, and then after a few times teaching it, learning that my students in online classes actually did better work than my students in the classroom classes. Yeah. And that I could control the variables more in an online class for quality. I could use such things as um, peer review and uh, a variety of tools that the technology facilitated that I didn't have access to in a classroom setting. So that, again, taught me a big lesson about what I thought about what teaching was. You know, and that it's a challenge. And the bigger the challenge is, the better it has always been. The more convinced I was that I was going to fail at, at it, the better it has been afterwards. So thinking of challenges as opportunities actually right. to learn and to create something. And, and, and really accepting the fact that I don't need to know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the hardest thing. And it's the thing I still work on with my teaching, you know, blended or otherwise, is that the hardest thing, and because I believe in complexity and I, I'm a big uh, follower of complexity science and systems, I believe in leaving holes in things and letting yeah. it organically fill itself. Yeah. And It may seem like you're not doing your job sometimes because aren't you supposed to account for every second in a class? No, you're not. You know, if you've created a, a, a space where people can learn, that's what you've done. And sometimes I don't know where that's going to lead. I don't know. I, and I don't have to know. Yeah, and so yeah. I, um, you know, I, I guess that that's one of the great learnings in my life is that generally if uh, students misunderstand an assignment that I ask them, they oftentimes will end up doing better work than I would have asked them to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so some little things like that have just taught me is that I really need to be better at giving up control and uh, I need to be better at uh, uh, using technologies to allow us to learn together rather than for it to be one way. We are in the, uh, you know, uh, it's just like media in general. It's gone from being one way to uh, uh, back and forth and back and forth. And so mm -hmm. I think technology gives me the opportunity to be more, um, to listen and respond more to my students. Mm -hmm. What did you uh, learn last time online? I mean, was it... What have I been learning last time online? I, again, I, I'm in five or six classes at a time. I've learned that I shouldn't have ignored my physics classes when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, I mean, I am absolutely fascinated by physics and especially quantum physics these days. Yeah. I'm, uh, the latest book I read was an incredible book on quantum gravity. And um, I've, uh, I read everything quantum and I take quantum classes. And so I'm, and it has, I, I like to say it has really nothing to do with what I do, but it has everything to do with what I do. I see. I mm. perceive that somehow the answer to what I'm looking for is there because as I look at it, as I interact with the physics space, yeah. I begin to understand a lot of my life. I'm at the age, you know, where I can kind of look back and reflect. And I realize that there's a great deal there that explains what I've seen in business, what I've seen in my classrooms. And um, it really brings home the uh, lack of ability to control, the unpredictability of things, um, the fact that there's a probability screen out there, and that there are many likely, uh, there are many possible paths, and there are many possible futures. It's all based on probability. So 
as a result of that, you know, my approach to teaching and uh, to business and my practice is also that I have a much greater appreciation for the role of chance. Yeah. I think I tend to be very left brain and left brain people, I think, like to think that they can control the world and that they can understand the world. And so for me, I have really gotten more comfortable with um, I don't have to know. I really yeah. don't have to understand. Maybe I can focus on something just to learn and I don't have to have I don't have to have the answer. But I can help, you know, come up with a group answer there. So mm-hmm. uh, that's I mean, there we share the hobby. I'm also uh, following a lot of. Um, stuff about quantum mechanics and, yeah. uh, and uh, I mean I'm so I mean if you look at data um, isn't it that all data are essentially observations yeah I mean by somebody human or you know some organization technical sensors somebody or something is observing or it can be also AI is observing yeah. know, and then and then creating this data so what is really striking in quantum mechanics is that uh, if you observe Um, the world. The I mean, then, uh, then the world changes based on the observation, and I, I think it's so fascinating. So, I mean, just by observing the world, it's not anymore the same. So, I mean, does it mean that also when we are anyways observing, I mean, to gathering some data, I mean, is the same thing happening somehow there as well? I mean, it's a lot of well, And I mean, and then you take that to just being in a classroom and talking about certain things. You know, I mean, mm. um, you know, what is happening in complexity science, of course, you know, the agents combine together and follow relatively simple rules to be able to come up with emergent behavior. Yeah. And so I think that what I was saying before, what I was really trying to say is that I try to make it more possible for emergent behavior yeah. to occur yeah. in my classes yeah. that I could never have predicted. Yeah. I never would have gone there. Exactly. It's kind of like the Zen of teaching. I don't always get it to where I wanted to go, but I always end up where I need to be. Yeah, yeah. I so see what you mean. I, I just got an email from my student saying that, hey, uh, thanks so much for the sessions, for the, you know, the lectures or sessions that we have had. And um, I found a good friend from the sessions yeah. because of the group discussions. I mean, can you predict that? Can you, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you create a design, you create a setting, and then you hope that something will emerge but i mean you it's no way you can calculate or kind of ensure that you know people find their best friend <laughs> I, th- i think it's kind of similar to when uh, we finally realized that uh, the earth was not the center of the solar system yeah. we still have yet to discover that professors are not the center of the oh, learning yeah, yeah. you yeah. know that there's uh, other things that are are important and other drivers and such yeah. as that. And you don't control everything. Everything does not a roll around you. Like we were talking about, you know, uh, comfort level. It's not my comfort level. Sometimes I have to be really, really uncomfortable in a class to be able to achieve that yeah. learning space yeah. that the students yeah. need to be able to move to where they need to move. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Also see so when when uh, somebody's, I mean, struggling perhaps they, with the presentation technology, then to jump in and, uh, Use your expertise and say that okay, no, well, we don't actually need the projector. I mean, let's mm-hmm. gather just around talk this to us. Laptop. Just talk let's, to us. You know, just share a story. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the story you want to tell? Don't care about the visuals. I mean, I mean, just we'll we are here to listen to you. Right. Um, I want to ask you. I mean, um, if you if you look at the era, I mean, where, that's where we also uh, we were starting uh, from that discussion, but. Uh, What is your vision about the uh, future of learning? Of course, you were touching it already in many ways, but uh, but um, I, mean, 
I'm, I don't know if I'm touching this. I'm touching the future of learning or the, t- the future of teaching. Yeah. I think the two are very different things. Yeah. I think there is a future of learning. I'm not sure there is a future of teaching. <laughs> so I, I have um, doctoral students, and I always say, why are you going into this business? I'm, we're going to be irrelevant relatively soon. So, uh, people have so many different opportunities for learning what they need to learn yeah. out there now. And, uh, you know, and so they can go online, they can get little uh, micro-credentials, they can get badges, they can get certifications. They can really bundle together because of um, the disintermediation that uh, the internet has brought us. It's disintermediated education as well. They no longer have to go to a university or even to a professor to learn what it is that they need to learn. They just need to watch a few YouTube videos. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's, that's what my business analytics students do before they have their certification exams. Sure, they've taken the classes, but to pass the exams, they watch a whole bunch of YouTube YouTube videos before they go into those exams there. So I think about the fact that, um, you know, what is it that I, what is the value add that someone like me still has in the system in terms of teaching? I know that learning is going to be learning because humans have to do that. Teaching is derived demand. The demand for teaching is derived for the need for learning. And so is there an alternative? With all derived demands, there's an alternative. And so what would be the alternative? And maybe it is the internet. Maybe it is machines. Maybe machines are better at teaching than we uh, are as humans. Mm-hmm. And certain things, certain mm-hmm. things. So I, I, but I really, that's been a crisis that I've had in um, personally, is thinking about what really is the value that I'm adding to my students, yeah. you know, in this. Because I can go out there and teaching my data visualization courses, you know, um, I teach using Tableau and there's no way I'm going to try to compete with Tableau in terms of putting together teaching materials and how to use their tool and such. So at the end of the day, what's my value saying, hey, here's Tableau, here's their site, here are their um, do-it-yourself videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what do I add beyond that? Well, I hope it's the ability to understand how to use that tool to tell a story with numbers. Yeah, so yeah. I say that I'm needed for that. But it just seems that so much of what we did, um, you know, has been taken, there's other sources for it now. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, um, uh, first of all, I mean, I think that universities are already media houses, whether they yep. want to be media houses or not. So students are expecting a lot of super high quality content from us. But I don't say that all universities really realize it nowadays. I mean, perhaps they don't want to be media houses, but that's 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 uh, what, I, what I really think. But also at the same time, if you think about other um, um, industries, I mean, let's take uh, music industry. I yeah. mean, obviously you have all those fantastic platforms to listen to music, but there is still a place for concerts. Right. I mean, still people, even even increasingly, they go to concerts, they want to, you know, meet and greet the artists and, uh, you know, they want to get into schools to learn music right. and they listen to this, you know, piece of music and they try to, you know, learn by imitating perhaps, but then there is still value to go to actual concerts. So, I don't know, it's some somewhere there, I really believe. I mean, we really should be uh, at the same time creating excellent content, I mean, in a digital form, but also uh, for, I mean, all these uh, learning environments as well yeah. that we are having at, at the compulsory and, and really be kind of both at serious and, and you know, relaxed at the same time. Yeah, I, I think you've given me a marketing answer. And so the marketing answer is that our value is that we create experience. 
Mm. Machines may very be very good at delivering content. Yeah. I think that human beings um, are uniquely capable of creating an environment or a user experience yeah. um, that I hope is that thing that I try to do, which is creating a space where people who choose to learn can do so. Yeah, can be facilitated yeah, in learning. Yeah. And I think we can help one of What I've been telling my students, especially since I've started teaching the data visualization class, is we learn best when we learn together. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's the unique thing about us is that in all of my classes, I stress, um, you know, always reflecting on how do you see things? How do other people yeah, see things? Yeah, yeah. Especially in teaching something like data visualization that has design elements and aesthetic elements yeah. in it and interpreta interpretation in it. You really need to understand how other people see it. Yeah. You know, if it's a response to a color or a response to a certain type of a, a graphic or whatever it is, it's really important to understand that. And I think that's what we can uniquely do. Yeah. I don't think that machines can mimic us, you know, and say, you know, I think that that's the connection between what is it uh, yeah. uh, that between our brains when people are in a room together there's yeah. that hypothalamic response is what they call it and uh, we connect to one another yeah. and I don't think that there's a substitute for that yeah I so and that's agree probably the best part of what for a lot of people that's the best part of what their their learning was in going to school was that connection with other like-minded people or people who got them to think yeah, simply yeah. got them to think who raised them above, you know, their typical internal dialogue, which may not be anything yeah. more than uh, complaining about your boss or your kids or something. Exactly. And it can be, you know, like even simple things that somebody saying that, OK, sorry, but in my culture, red doesn't mean yep. the same as in your culture. Mm -hmm. Wow, I didn't think about it. Yeah. So in how how machine could I mean, perhaps it could also a machine can tell us that. But we have to see someone else's face when they yeah, say those things. Exactly. And they have to talk about, you know, body and, language. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So we, we still communicate in ways that um, AI, um, I don't think would ever be able to, uh, to yeah. emulate. And they don't have to. And it can still be very, very useful. Um, but I, I don't think we want to create, you know, clones or, um, you know, Android's machines. I don't see that as any great value. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a role for mechanical beings, but there's certainly a role for uh, sentient beings, uh, carbon-based life forms as well. And so, you know, you don't try to replace one; they complement one another. Yeah, great answers. Hey, uh, final question, and uh, this is a question that we um, ask uh, from oral guests. So, uh, cloud reachers. I mean, the name of the podcast is, um, of course, the idea is to reaching out some dreams or some something that is doesn't exist uh, yet or even cloud i mean online mm -hmm. of course that is one interpretation so if you look at your own field so who is the cloud reacher in your own field well the tough thing there is i have so many different fields you know <laughs> at, at any given time and there is you know i can i can pull them all together and tell you how they all relate um, but let's uh, take data visualization because i've been talking about that a lot i tell you someone that has really inspired me and though he's passed on within the last couple of years hans rosling oh, yeah. and um, the joy of statistics his open university course um, i use that um, his video on um, you know uh, the comparison of uh, uh, live births and uh, gdp across uh, uh, developing countries. I mean, to show someone who is not only an expert at the use of statistics, an expert at the use of visual effects for statistics, and someone who is passionate 
about what it is that they do. Yeah. There's a beautiful combination there of uh, personal and professional that is uh, certainly something that I would want my students to aspire to when they're sitting there and doing their data visualization jobs at their company is to still think that, you know what, I can, this is an art form as well. And I think that, um, to me, Hans Rosling raised statistics to an art form and helped a lot of people to see that uh, it's a joyful pursuit as well. And I never thought I'd say that because uh, I certainly was not good at math when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But, you know, life is strange. I ended up being a statistician. I ended up being a market researcher. And I, mm-hmm. I do data visualization. So mm-hmm. Yeah, he's fantastic in telling stories. And how about you? Data. I mean... Um, Hans Rosling is definitely uh, uh, one one of the um, key persons. Um, instead of giving one single name, mm-hmm. because I mean, I also think that I have like yeah. Im- immediately um, tens of different names come into my mind, including uh, Hans Rosling. I would say that um, that Cloud Reacher for me is uh, is somebody who is um, who has uh, first of all uh, clear with her or his values. And um, and um, and uh, hopefully they are like about openness and transparency, about um, you know goodwill. I mean, actually trying to do something uh, in a in a better way, in a more uh, sustainable way, in a right. more um, like taking into account what what uh, I mean, actually caring about uh, other people. And um, but at the same time, also a brave warrior. I mean, like mm-hmm. like really um, not too much believing in the like bureaucracy and right. administrational structures, and and really brave enough to uh, do things in a different way. Yeah, there's a uh, saying: speak truth to power. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Out of the box thinking yeah. and, uh-huh. and and uh, and uh, not not. Believing everything that is kind of given, but I mean, skepticism, healthy skepticism, critical, yeah, critical thinking, but at the same time being creative and uh, not just like criticizing, but really showing an alternative and and being ready to bravely put herself or himself to the position of, of actually leading the folks. What's the next right answer? That's what I always tell my students. I say, you know what? Um, you're going to answer. You're, you're going to answer a question in this class, and my response is to you is that uh, is going to be okay. What's another right answer? And it's not because your answer it isn't right. It's because we always need to be looking for the next right answer. Yeah, yeah. And not just stop with the low hanging fruit. And I'm not saying your stuff is low hanging fruit, but I'm always saying there's another right answer out there, and you need to find them as many as you can before you decide what it is you're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. You have to try things out. Sometimes yeah. you uh, <laughs> fail, but sometimes you also uh, learn exactly because you failed, right? Fearless failures. I think that yeah. that would be someone that I think is a cloud reacher too, is people who, um, as they say in business now, uh, fail fast and fail often. Yeah. And that's the only way to learn because maybe that's yeah. what learning is going to be in the future is more failures. Yeah, exactly. And if you have challenges, perhaps it's even good to have these challenges because, I mean, then you can look at them as opportunities to grow, I mean, not just yourself, but the whole society or community around you. And that's why I sometimes have to let my students fail Yeah. because it's not my job. I mean, I can't teach them what they need to know if I enable, if I keep them from failing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they need to learn that lesson just as I learned that lesson there. Yeah. But I try to do it within a safe setting of the university. Yeah. So that's yeah. a great value of the university yeah. is the ability to fail in a safe and nurturing environment where you can get good feedback on things and consider what you're going to do in the future. A good example of that would be like with ethical decision making. 
Yeah. That's a really, really tough one and uh, really tough decisions that have to be made there. And I think that's it's best to reflect on those within a, you know, a, a nurturing, inclusive uh, a group of people who are all, you know, trying to move that way forward. Because it can be very scary to be ethical in the real world of business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, um, thanks so much for Thank joining. You. This was a great, great pleasure. Um, so this is uh, Cloud Creatures episode um I'm Tommy Kaupinen. See you next time. Bye. Bye.